team as well. Um, how many of you have ever heard of the, the song called the doxology before? Some of us, yeah, a lot of us. So it's kind of interesting because that song actually was written in the 1600s as a way of kind of codifying our core doctrine. And it, it talks about, you know, who God is and, and what he's done. And, and it's kind of a way, it's a, it's a way for people to be able to hear uh, what our doctrine of Christianity is. And what's cool, though, is that it goes uh, much, much uh, further back than that, all the way to the early church, um, trying to help people understand who Jesus uh, was. And so um, very, very meaningful thing. And, and the whole thing of why are we singing amen, 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 amen? Because amen means truth. And so, you know, it's kind of funny because it's kind of like kids today. Truth, you know, like it's, it's, it's like the mic drop. Like, this is truth. This is truth. We declare it to be so. And, um, and then it's also a declaration of surrender, of so be it. And so, so be it that those words are true in our lives. And, and we want those words to, to make itself known in, in our lives and in the world around us. So I love that song. It's kind of funny. When I was, when I was uh, early in ministry, uh, James Suderman, who was a pastor that I, that I worked with and under, and, and he loved that. Every church potluck, he would have us sing the doxology before that. And so this morning, James, uh, thinking of you, buddy. So uh, anyhow, hey, thank you so much for being here. Appreciate it. Um, you know those embarrassing moments when you walk up to a door and uh, the railing goes, the push bar goes all the way across and you're, you're, you're with a group of people and you're the first one and you're supposed to open the door for everybody and you're kind of like, oh, shoot, this is 50-50. Does it open to the right or does it open to the left? Because you can't really tell. And instead of like just, you know, uh, carefully kind of examining, looking for other cues, sort of like you just walk up and boldly just go poof like that. And the, 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 the door proves to be much stronger than you because you push over here, but the hinges are right here, right? And you don't realize where the hinges are at until, until you push, right? And, and sometimes uh, we're like that. Uh, we have these little things called hinges. Now, this little seemingly insignificant thing um, is just what you think it is. It's, it's a barn door hinge from rural Nebraska, right? It's rusty. It's been painted. It's squeaky. Um, and it seems kind of tiny, right? But to think that an entire door would hinge on this and maybe one or two others, right? It seems really, really insignificant, but the entire door hinges on the hinge. That's why they call it hinging, right? There you go. There you go. The entire door pivots on the hinge. This morning, we're going to see how our hearts are the hinges that our lives pivot on. Sometimes we have a hardened heart, and that's what our life hinges on, is a hardened heart. Sometimes we have a humble heart, and our, our, our life hinges on that humble heart. But the difference between a hardened heart hinge and a humbled heart hinge can make a very, very big difference. Here's the thing. A lot of times we don't know if we have a humble heart or a hard heart until we're pushed, right? And so this morning, Jesus is going to reveal the hinges of some people, and they don't really take it very well. They don't like what Jesus has to show them. We're going to be looking, we're going to be continuing this morning in the book of Matthew, and we are going to knock out chapter 12 today. So we're going to start in Matthew chapter 12. If you have your Bibles, you can get it out, follow along on your phone or, or on the screen if you want. 
But we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna summarize some of it, but we're going to start here in chapter uh, 12, verses 1 and 2. At about that time, Jesus was walking through some grain fields in, on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry, so they began breaking off some heads of grain and eating them. Okay, where I grew up, you would have all these corn fields and milo fields and soybean fields and wheat fields. And, and where my mom grew up and where I went to college and where Ian goes to college and Nicole went to college, uh, there were tons of wheat fields. But here's the thing. You have these two-lane roads, like these highways or even the gravel roads. Um, but then you would have these ditch. I should say, where Frank grew up. Frank, do you know a couple things about wheat fields? Just a little bit. Correct me if I'm wrong, because I'm a corn guy, right? But, but here we go. So you'd have these roads, but then you'd have the road ditch, and then further out, then they would get to the grain, right? To go over and to pick some heads of wheat, you would have to like kind of get off your path. But in Jesus' time, they didn't have asphalt, right? They didn't have concrete. They just had these paths that went through the countryside. And if it cut through Farmer Bob's field, it went through Farmer Bob's field, right? He just knew this, this path would go through there. So they're literally walking through, and they're hungry. They've been walking, following Jesus. Jesus has been doing some crazy stuff, and, and they're, they're probably exhausted and tired. And, and so what do they do? They reach out, and they just literally grab some. They rip off the heads of, of grain. And then with wheat, you can't just pop that in your mouth unless you want pokey things, you know, like sticking in your esophagus and things like that, right? So what they would do is they would take the grain, they would put it in their hands, they would, they would rub it like that until all the chaff would come off, and then they would blow it, blow the chaff away. Now you have the heads of wheat that you can just pop in your mouth and, and eat, right? Well, sounds simple enough. The problem was, is that it was on the Sabbath, Verse 2, but some, Ser- some Pharisees saw them do it and protested, look, your disciples are breaking the law by harvesting grain on the Sabbath. The problem was, is that the act of breaking off the head of wheat was considered harvesting. Rubbing it and blowing away the chaff was, was, was considered part of the harvesting process, right? And so even though they just got a couple you know, handfuls of grain and popped it in their mouth for a little snack, that was considered harvesting. And you can't do that on the Sabbath. You see, these, Sabbath, these, uh, these, these Pharisees, we've talked a lot about them, um, they gave their lives to studying the law, to perfecting the law, to practicing the law and then enforcing the law, right? They taught people and then they enforced it. It wasn't just the law though, because a good Pharisee wouldn't just go with the law. They would also interpret and add to the law. I've talked about this before, but um, uh, James Mishner writes a great book called The Source. If you like an archaeological history of the Jewish people, it's riveting. It's like 1,300 pages long and it's archaeological history. Anybody else? Thank you, Will and I. We're going we're gonna, to, there you go. But it's fascinating because it kind of takes this look of if, if the law is right there, the law is a fence to keep us from sin. Well, if one fence is good, two fences is better. So we want a fence around the fence to keep us from sinning. Well, if two fences is good, three fences is better. Let's have a law to keep us from the law that keeps us from the law that keeps us from sin. And it kept on going. And so literally every aspect of everyday life, seven days a week, 24 hours a day, was governed by some kind of law. And it was a law upon a law upon a law upon a law. And so that's what would happen is that these Pharisees, these rabbis, these teachers would not only teach people the Ten Commandments, but the hundreds and hundreds of other commandments that they added to it to keep people good. 
They viewed the law as what makes us right with God. We are right with God only when we follow the laws, but the problem was that the law had all these other cultural things that regulated and dominated every other area of life. Verses 3 and 4. Jesus said to them, Haven't you read in the scriptures when David, what, what David did when he and his companions were hungry? He went into the house of God, and he and his companions broke the law by eating the sacred loaves of bread that only the priests were allowed to eat. Okay, what happens here is that in the holy place, the priests would bake 12 loaves of bread every week, and they would take it into the holy place. They'd put it on the table, and they would, they would put 12 loaves of bread as a sacrifice to God. Well, and God really didn't eat it too often, right? Because he doesn't need our bread, but it's a sacrifice. And so then what would they do is they'd take the 12 loaves from the previous week, and they would take that, and they could eat that right? And that was part of the priestly duties was to set out the new sacrifice and then they could dispose of the old one and they could eat it. Well, David was running for his life with his companions and they go into the holy place and they're like, we're famished. You know, we're, we're, we, are, we are hungry. And so the priests are kind of like, well, have you kept yourselves clean? They're like, yeah, we're clean. And he goes, go ahead and take some of the loaves of bread, right? The thing was, is technically they were breaking the law, but the priests were saying, yeah, but you're, you're running for your life and you need food to stay alive, right? So here's some loaves. I know you're not priests, but it's okay. The spirit of the law is more important than the letter of the law, right? And so, so Jesus kind of throws that in their face. And then verse 5, um, it says, And haven't you read in the law of Moses that the priests um, on duty in the temple may work on the Sabbath? Guess what? Priests work on the Sabbath. Pastors work on Sunday, right? Like, it's just kind of what it is, right? I grew up like, oh, we could not work. We could, and, and I, was, I was thankful because there was one day of the week I knew I wasn't going to work on the farm, and it was Sunday. We had no problem going to church where the pastor was working, right? And then we had no problem going out to eat where the people serving us food were, were working, right? Well, they probably weren't Christian anyhow because if they were Christian, they wouldn't get a job on Sunday. They would be in church, like good people, right? Like, like I love you, Dad, Mom, but I think, you know, they would never say that. They would never say that. But, but no, I mean, that was kind of how, how I was raised in thinking is, is um, priests do need to work, right? We do, we do some things on Sabbath that uh, might not be entirely restful, Right? Um, that's why a lot of pastors will take three-hour naps on Sunday afternoons, right? So, so there you go. We're making up for lost time in the morning. But, but no, th- that's the thing, though, is that what we're doing is good. What we're doing is meaningful. There is purpose and value to it. And so we're not going to, again, it's, it's the intent and the heart of the law, not the letter of the law itself. Verses 6 through 8. I tell you, there is one who is even greater than the temple. But you would not have condemned my innocent disciples if you knew the meaning of this scripture. I want you to show mercy, not offer sacrifices, for the Son of Man is Lord even over the Sabbath. Jesus is establishing himself as over the law, the temple, Sabbath, all these rules and regulations. He is over them. They are not the point, he is. Then verses 9 through 13. Then Jesus went over to their synagogue. (laughs) 
Jesus, come on. Like, you're, you're, you're asking for it at this point, right? You're like, you guys are out in the wheat fields and you're coming after us. Fine, I'm going to come to your house of worship, right? Jesus, I'm telling you guys, the more I get to know Jesus, the more I love his humor. All right? And, and uh, there you go. When he noticed, where he noticed a man with a deformed hand, the Pharisees asked Jesus, does the law permit a person to work, on, work by healing on the Sabbath? They were hoping he would say yes so they could bring charges against him, right? Look at, look at what's really going on. They are trying to set Jesus up to fail so that they could accuse him. This was not a friendly, like, hey, let's discuss this. Can, is it okay to heal someone? No, 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 no. They already had it made up in the mind. They knew that their answer was no. In verse 11, and he answered, if you had a sheep that fell into a well on the Sabbath, wouldn't you work to pull it out? Of course you would. And how much more valuable is a person than a sheep? Yes, the law permits a person to do good on the Sabbath. Then he said to the man, hold out your hand. So the man held out his hand, and it was restored just like the other one. Jesus says, the law is for our good. Healing is for our good. It's okay to heal when it conflicts with the law. Jesus, if, if the law and Jesus butt up against each other, it's always going to be Jesus that wins, right? Because Jesus is over that law. The legalists couldn't handle it, right? They were trying to trick him. They're trying to fool him into doing something stupid, and he just goes and does it. And then, and then he kind of says, well, joke's kind of on you, right? These people had given their lives to following the law, and look where it takes them. Verse 14. Then the Pharisees called a meeting to plot how to kill Jesus. Picking grains of wheat. Healing people. These are life-giving things. They're not evil, let's see how close we can get to sinning and get away with it things, right? This isn't, hey, let's see how devious we can get. And then I'm still covered by, this is not, this is life-giving good things that were prohibited under the legalistic system of the Pharisees. And they couldn't handle it. They couldn't see it. They couldn't bring themselves around to following what Jesus is trying to get at right here. And do you see the irony? Heaven forbid you break the Sabbath, but murder is about to be okay. That's how screwed up they are in their mind. Let's not lose sight of just how dramatic this actually is. The problem is, is that when our lives revolve around the law, legalism, morality, some kind of system, there's no room for mercy or compassion. And Jesus points out the irony that things like buildings and actions and sacrifices and Sabbath and all these things are actually for our health, for our good, instead of trying to keep us down and in our place, right? They're for our health and wholeness and, and restoration and forgiveness and healing. And God created these things for, for our healing, our wholeness, and to reflect his glory. And when they start to take away from the glory of God and the work of what Jesus was doing and was about to do, when those things start to compete with and take away from those things, 
we realize how easy it is for those things to become more important than Jesus. And if that's the case, they need to go, right? Now, Jesus, we see as in, we're going to summarize a, a big section here. Jesus knows what they're up to. He sees what's going on in their heart. And so he, uh, he goes to another different area. He leaves that area, and he keeps on healing people, right? And we come across this, this story where there's this guy who is possessed by a demon, and the demon was taking away his, his vision and his ability to hear and his ability to talk. That, what, what's, what's so crazy is a study the, the life and teachings of Jesus is that he does so many things purposefully, is that if, if he is all of a sudden healing a, a deaf and blind person, guess what? That's symbolic. He is about to, like, you're looking who he's going to talk to next, right? And so what happens is that Jesus heals this guy who all of a sudden, boom, when Jesus has, asserts his authority over the, the demon, he can see, he can talk, he can, he can hear, everything like that. He's restored. But then what's, what's crazy is that the Pharisees then come and accuse Jesus of using Satan's authority to cast out Satan's demons. They're saying, Jesus, you are empowered by Satan to do what you're doing. That's pretty blind. That's pretty deaf. That's you know, it's pretty easy to see who Jesus is referring to here, right? And so he actually then challenges the logic, of, if I'm from Satan, how could I cast myself out of them, right? Like, why and how would that even work? Jesus just flat out points out the, the logical problem with what they're accusing. And so then in verses 31 and 32, he talks about how... Um, this is kind of a, a misunderstood passage in the Bible where it talks about the unforgivable sin, the blaspheming, right? But he basically says this. He says, look, you can be forgiven for not knowing Jesus. You can be forgiven for speaking out against Jesus. But once you find Jesus and you surrender, you're supposed to be on Jesus' side, and then you turn away from him never to return, it's, it's not good for your eternal destiny, right? Like, if you know Jesus and you say you were walking with him, and you deny that, and you walk away from that, it's kind of like, how, how is that supposed to work, right? But I'm still a good person. Yeah, but you deny Jesus, and Jesus is the way, the truth, and life. Nobody comes to the Father but through him. We're basically trying to say, no, well, I can find my own way over here, right? And so he says, hey, to these religious people, you're blind, you're deaf, you're mute, you think you know what's going on, but you're clueless, right? And you're supposed to be the good guys. This is not going to bode well for you. They reject Jesus time after time after time. And then he goes on and he kind of repeats what he said earlier in Matthew, where he gives a couple historical examples of saying these, these horrible pagan Gentile uh, uh, people, that if they would have had the proof that the Pharisees have, they would have repented. And Jesus is specifically trying to thumb them in the chest just a little bit to get them to wake up a little bit. But they are just... They're so set in their ways that they cannot see Jesus. Then the chapter ends with someone coming to Jesus right at the end of the chapter and saying, Jesus, your, your mother and your brothers are waiting outside for you. They really want to talk to you, right? And, and what's really cool is how Jesus ends this in uh, verses 48 uh, through 50. Jesus asks, who is my mother? Who are my brothers? Then he pointed to his disciples and said, look, these are my mother and brothers, Anyone who does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. 
this is not a knock on earthly families. This is not saying that earthly families aren't important. Instead, it's saying that there is something bigger. There is something deeper. There is something more meaningful eternally than just our flesh and blood families. And membership in that family has nothing to do with flesh and blood. Who was our earthly uh, father and mother, right? He says, it's a matter of heart and spirit and action. If we are a part of Jesus's family, we have a whole new family, capital F family, right? It's kind of cool because in earlier in the chapter, in verses 33 and 34, he said, as a tree is identified by, uh, sorry, a tree is identified by its fruit. If a tree is good, its fruit will be good. If a tree is bad, its fruit will be bad. Whatever is in your heart determines what you will say and obviously do, right? So he says what's in our heart is what determines how our lives are going to go. It says if, if I am against Jesus and his, his family, then I'm not a part of that family. But if I'm, a, if I'm about Jesus, I find myself belonging to a larger family. So here's the big idea of this passage. Jesus invites us into an intimate relationship compelled by an inner transformation. Jesus invites us into an intimate relationship compelled by an inner transformation. The purpose of Sabbath is not to not work. It's to find rest and worship God. The purpose of sacrifice isn't ourselves and our efforts. It's the love, grace, and mercy of Jesus. The purpose of signs that God gives us isn't for our little kicks and giggles, right? It's to respond to the glory of God. Jesus is trying to help them understand that, the, that a religion of like morality and, and goodness and all these things like that can only temporarily shuffle sin around. Think about that. If I serve the law and some moral code and that is the greatest good in my life, all I'm doing is shuffling sin around in my life. I might shuffle it all over here, and I might feel good over here until all of a sudden it's kind of like you ever clean your house and you throw everything into one, one bedroom? Or is that just the trick that we do at our house when we have Connect Group? And so like, don't, 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 don't go upstairs. Don't go upstairs, right? Like, we just took everything from it. Down, we don't do that. I can't believe you would think we'd ever do that. There we go. But that's what, that's, what, that's what legalism is. It's just shuffling sin around in our lives to try to hide it and conceal it so that we can feel good about the parts that are publicly seen. Well, the problem is, is that things fester in the dark, in the hidden spaces. It's not fooling anybody, right? And so that's where Jesus is trying to get us to see beyond this temporary and short-sighted view of faith. And he says in 43 and, and uh, through 46, and he says, and when an evil spirit leaves a person, it goes into the desert seeking rest, but finds none. Then it says, you know, I'm going to return to this person I came from. So it returns and finds its former home empty, swept, and in order. Then the spirit finds seven other spirits, uh, seven other spirits more evil than itself, and they all enter the person and live there. And so that person is worse off before, uh, worse off than before. That will be the experience of this evil generation. Imagine. Hey, spirit, get out of here, right? I'm not going to take you all the way out, but just move over here, right? And so he goes, he comes back, he goes, hey, this place has been cleaned up. Sweet, I'm going to go get seven more of my buddies that are even bigger partiers than I am, and we're going to come in and wreck your life. That's a powerful, powerful example. 
don't just shuffle sin around in our life. We need to fill the space with something else. It's like last week. I always laugh at connect groups. I'm telling you, connect groups are where it's at. This is great. Connect groups are 10 times better because all of a sudden I'm hearing people say, you know, how God's word spoke in their lives and the spirit spoke to them. And, and, and all of a sudden someone said, you know, we were talking about how, you know, Jesus says, pick up my yoke. In other words, if I pick up Jesus's yoke, my hands are full. I don't have room for other things that are going to bring me down. And this is where he kind of continues that concept is don't just try to empty the house, fill it with Jesus. And that's the power of a relationship. A relationship, when we get married, we don't just say, I'm going to marry you and you're going to be over here and I'm going to be over here. I'm going to have, I'm going to give you this hours of the day, this days of the week. I'm going to give you this, you know, no, the two become one. That is what a marriage is because it's the, it's, the most, it's the closest thing on earth that we have to our relationship with our creator. The two become one. There is no area of our life untouched by the relationship we have with our creator. Jesus calls to an intimate, ongoing, daily, all-encompassing, invasive, transformational relationship. That's what our relationship with Jesus is supposed to be characterized by. If we are dry, if God feels distant, if we kind of are, are mad at God and things like that, those are seasons that we can go through. But just like in a marriage, we better not just let those slide. We got to lean into those things. We got to dig into those things. What's wrong that our, our relationship isn't close right now? But just like it's easy in our marriages and our parenting and our friendships and our, our neighbor, it, it's, it's easy to just avoid that conflict, Right? But Jesus says, no, 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 I'm knocking at the door of your heart. Are you going to let me in? Are you going to let me into every area of our life? That relationship is meant to fill who we are. And every area is determined and directed by him. And that's what starts to drive us, is a loving response to the work of grace that God has done in our lives. It's what needs to fill our lives, our hearts, our minds, our mouths, our time, everything. So back to the hinge, right? If our hearts are hardened hinges, if we want to compete with Jesus at who gets to be the sovereign Lord of our lives, it's not good. We're not going to, the, the door of our lives is not going to hinge the way it was meant to, right? We're going to be frustrated. We're going to, to be angry. We're going to be uh, uh, isolated. We're going we're gonna to run into a lot of obstacles if our hearts are hardened hinges. And it's sort of like, no, I will not do what God wants me to do. Because the thing is, is when we have hardened hearts, our, our lives only hinge as far as we can make it go. But if we have a humbled heart, and if we surrender our lives, if Jesus, if, if our hearts are soft and pliable and surrendered to the good Savior that Jesus is, now all of a sudden our lives are filled with him and his presence and his purpose. And that's what my prayer is for myself and for each one of us, that we can experience the presence, the healing, the wholeness, the peace, the rest, the motivation, the wisdom, the guidance, the creativity, the power, and on and on and on that comes from an infinitely good and powerful God. That's what we want to see in our lives. How often do we limit 
our lives because our hearts are hardened. Guys, I'm, I, I say this all the time. If your toes have been stepped on this morning, I'm so sorry, but mine were stepped on first. Because I got to study this stuff, and I got to wrestle with, what am I going to say? You know what? Every time I sit down and I read this passage several times, and I'm kind of like, okay, God, I know what I'm thinking right now, and this hurts. <laughs> but it's also encouraging because God sees into my life and he speaks into that and he says, Jason, you really need to really think about this. About things that you've said, things that you've done, ways that you've acted. And before you can tell anybody else about it, you better think through this. And, and then I get to come before you and say, hey guys, <laughs> let's look at God's word. <laughs> See how it applies to your life, just like it does mine. But good news is that one, we're in this together. None of us are perfect, and we're all in this together. We're all in need of the grace of Jesus, and the cool thing is, is we have it. It's right here with us. Whether we see it, acknowledge it, recognize it or not, it's with us. No one's pointing fingers at anybody else. This is, this is Jesus just speaking into each one of our hearts. He loves us, and he's going to discipline those that he loves. It's just like as parents, if I didn't love my kid... I wouldn't discipline them. If I discipline them, it means I love them. And I'm going to try to discipline them as lovingly as I can, but there still is that point of guidance and direction and correction. So here's the action point. Here's the, the thought of how to move from belief to action, from knowing to doing. How do you know which way a hinge opens? You push it. So this week, push yourself. Or... Look at how you're being pushed. How do you respond when you're pushed? Do you see a soft heart, a humbled heart, a surrendered heart, a loving heart, a compassionate heart, a merciful heart? Or do you see a prideful heart, a, self in, uh, a self, uh, selfish, self-centered, independent, self-reliant heart, an angry heart, a mean heart, a defensive heart? What do we see in our lives, in our hearts, when we're pushed. Now, here's the thing, is if our hinge, if our heart isn't what we want it to be, ask Jesus to remodel, because Jesus is really good at doing that. I love that Jesus was a carpenter, because he gets how to replace the hinges in our hearts. Amen? Verse 21, and close with this. Verse 21 says that Jesus' name would be the hope of the world. Jesus' name, his essence, who he was, what he did, who he is, what he's doing, is our hope. Anything else that we put our hope in is going to fall flat. It's going to disappoint. It's going to let us down. Any church, any leader, any agenda, any style, any preference, any morality, any code, anything that we put in that line other than Jesus is going to let us down. But if we put our hope in Jesus that hope is fulfilled. So that's my prayer for us. Humble our hearts, let's surrender to Jesus, and let's look what he's going to do in our lives. Amen? All right, let's pray. God, we thank you so much for, um, for doing the hard work of, of, of pointing out uh, the things that are going on in our lives. God, the, the things that we struggle with. God, we might not be a, a classical legalist like the Pharisees to where we have a spoken, written law 
But yet, God, it's so easy to fall into unspoken and unwritten laws and cultures and expectations, things that, that add burdens onto us, things that limit us, things that enslave us. God, they can be seemingly good things or they can be outright evil things. We, there's a lot of different variety in that. But God, it matters to you. You came to set us free. You came to open us up to, to your presence, to your word, to your spirit, to your freedom, to your love. And so God, this morning, I pray that we would just be open to that, that we'd receive that, that we would um, look to what you're revealing um, in us and about us. But God, thank you also that you don't just leave us on our own. God, you walk us through that relationship with you. God, I pray that if there's anybody here that's struggling in a relationship or hasn't taken that step yet to, to, ask, um, to ask you um, into that relationship, God, that we would take that leap of faith. God, that we would see your love, your grace, your mercy in our lives. God, that you would soften our hearts that we can humble ourselves before you. God, we love you. We pray these things in your name. Amen.